You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you'll be encouraged from this message from the book of Joel. Uh, several years ago, there was a reality show called Doomsday Preppers. How many of you guys remember that show, Doomsday Preppers? Anybody? And uh, for those who don't know, the show revolved around people who spent their time and money preparing for Doomsday. Whether it's caused by a natural disaster, financial collapse, nuclear winter scenario, whatever. These people were crazy. They were nuts. Of course, they feel vindicated now that COVID-19 happened, but that's another story. (laughs) But their goal was and is simple, to outlast and outlive any apocalyptic scenario. One description I found on the show says this. The series goes inside America's prepping subculture. I wonder if there's any prepping subculture happening in the church right now. Uh, if, you, if you have one of those shelters, I, I would love to see it if that's you. So. But anyway, it goes to America's prepping subculture and introduces otherwise ordinary folks who stockpile food, water, weapons, and whatever else they think is necessary in the event basic services should falter and society turns chaotic and violent. You might say it's the goal of every doomsday prepper to confidently sing the song, R.E.M.'s Michael Stripe's words, It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, right? Well, over the last three months, many people have been asking, is this the end of the world as we know it? The COVID-19 crisis has brought the world to a standstill. There's been violence in the streets. There's been reports of earthquakes, locust invasions. You don't see this stuff in the news, but there's locust invasions happening in our world right now. And rumors of war. Many people have been legitimately asking, are we living in the end times? Church, the truth is, we don't know when Jesus will return. Even Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But what we do know is this, every single day is one day closer to the end. We know that scripture gives us things to look out for which point to the end. And we know that unlike the doomsday preppers, there's really only one true way to prepare for the end. And so this morning as we continue our study in the book of Joel, we're going to find God's prophet prepping God's people for the end. Up to this point, you'll remember that Joel described Judah's locust plague and the impending army invasion as the day of the Lord. You remember that, the day of the Lord? We talked about that for a few weeks. It was a time of God's judgment for the sins of his people. And if Judah repented of their sins, they would avoid this imminent judgment. Well, now, this morning, Joel like, takes a radical leap uh, really into the future. It's like back to the future, but way back in biblical days. Because now we're going to find Joel shifting gears and describing to the people of Judah and us events that will precede what is called, what we consider the final day of the Lord. The final day of the Lord. This day represents the future and final time when God will judge all the nations of the earth. In other words, the end of the world as we know it. And so in today's passage, Joel is going to describe some precursors to this great and terrible day, the end of the world as we know it. Are you with me? And so it's through Joel's message that we're going to be reminded of a vital and timely truth, a truth that applies both to believers and unbelievers alike, a truth that demands 
immediate application. And friends, the truth is this. We must turn to God while it's called today. And so we're going to unpack what that looks like in, in, in our study today. So if you will, I want you to open up your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. Now, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, you could grab the copy that's in front of you in the pew, and it's page 762. Okay, so as you're turning to Joel chapter 2, I'm going to pray, ask God's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the opportunity to jump back into Joel. And God, I thank you, God, that Joel actually does change his message because it gives us an opportunity to talk about something that, that we haven't talked about in a while, uh, Lord, which is, which is the end times and the end of days and, and what's that, what is that going to look like. And, and so, God, I'm looking forward to being able to, to uh, bring your word to your people but Father God, in the flesh, I'm going to fail miserably. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit and the power of your word would be what, what changes our hearts and our minds this morning. That, that we will be a people prepared uh, for your coming. And God, that this morning, as we just look at, as a, at a tiny little snapshot of what uh, your coming is going to look like, Father, that we would, it would sink in to the point, God, where it results in, in life change. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, an 80-year-old woman was recently married to her fourth husband, and a reporter questioned the occupation of her newly acquired husband, and she replied that he owned a funeral home. And so curious about the other husbands, the reporter asked about their occupation as well. And so the woman paused for a while and stated that her first husband was a banker. And then the second husband was a circus master, and the third husband was a minister. And so puzzled by her answers... The reporter asks, wait a minute, none of these people have anything in common. Why did you marry such a diverse group of men? And the woman re replied, well, I married one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. You're all going to go home and tell that joke to somebody later. Church, when it comes to the end times, we do well to make sure that we're ready to go. We do well to understand the signs around us and be prepared for the Lord's coming. And so in today's passage, Joel is going to give the people of Judah kind of a peak of things to come. A snapshot of three events that will precede the final day of the Lord. And it's certainly not an exhaustive list of events. Look at this is like three verses, or excuse me, five verses and like three events. So there's a whole lot of other stuff that happens, but we're going to give you a snapshot today and hopefully clear some, clear some of the air. So let's begin by looking at the first. It's this, the outpouring of the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. Joel says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. You know, a few weeks ago, I was on vacation in upstate Michigan, and we visited a sand dune park, which featured these massive sand dunes that you were able to kind of hike up and down and climb over. And uh, if you had the energy and the ability to do so uh, on like a 90-some degree day with the sun beating down on you, it was kind of a fun adventure. Um, and man, my, my youngest son, Colton, who's, who's eight, he was like leading the pack on the way out. On the way back was a whole other story. I was kind of dragging him, but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, we're, we're making this, this long, hot trek, and one of the motivations to keep going uh, on this trek was if you make it, and it was several miles, but if you can make it several miles, there was a swimming hole in Lake Michigan that you were able to cool off in. And it was only for people who made the trek. And so we're like, all right, we could do that. That's the motivation to keep going. 
And so I distinctly remember at one point early into the trek, we made it to the top of one of the highest peaks of the sand dunes. I'm talking big sand dunes here, like mountainous sand dunes. And so we made it to the top of one of the highest ones, and I was able to see Lake Michigan in the distance. And so, like, that was the motivation. We're like, guys, there's the lake. We're almost there. Let's keep going. But the only problem was we thought we were getting close, but what we couldn't see was how many more valleys and mountains of sand we needed to go up and down to actually get to the lake. Well, in the same way, prophets only saw what God allowed them to see. And so just like standing on the peak of a sand dune, God allowed Joel to look into the distance and see the end game, but he didn't necessarily see the time frame. So when Joel said, and it shall come to pass afterward, that word afterward didn't necessarily mean immediately. Because what Joel foresaw wouldn't take place until centuries later. But nevertheless, Joel envisioned a time when God would pour out his Holy Spirit on all believers. You see, during the Old Testament era, in case you weren't aware of this, during the Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit was only given to a select group of of men or women or people uh, to empower them to accomplish a special God-given task. People like Moses, the prophets, the judges, King David, and so forth. It is interesting, even Moses desired that one day God would pour his spirit out on all believers. Look at Numbers 11.29. But Moses replied, I wish that the Lord's people were, were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. And then likewise, the prophet Ezekiel, he also looked toward this day. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And so here, Joel indicates that before this final day of the Lord, before ultimate judgment, before the end of the world as we know it, there would be this remarkable outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on his people. And this remarkable outpouring, listen, it was initiated about 2,000 years ago. Centuries later from Joel, but it's in the past for us, at Pentecost, shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It should be on the screen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when this amazing event occurred, there were many naysayers in the crowd that were accusing the disciples of being drunk. And that always got to me, and it still does to this day when you read that, because it's like, I never met a drunk guy that could speak different languages before because he was drunk, right? But nevertheless, that's what they thought. Oh, they're just drunk. Uh, and so, and that's when, interestingly enough, Peter quoted today's passage from the book of Joel. He quoted the prophet Joel a little bit later on in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, the exact verses that we're reading today. And so he used Joel's prophecy as a way of telling these naysayers, these unbelievers, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit had commenced. It kind of began at Pentecost. Now again, it wasn't a complete fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, as we're going to see in a few minutes. There was a lot more that came with it, but it was the start of the commencement process of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And ever since that incredible day, ever since Pentecost 2,000 years ago, when anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ, they too receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised, what? Holy Spirit. 
So church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it began at Pentecost. It continues today, and it's going to culminate with a great outpouring shortly before the final day of the Lord arrives. And so why does this matter to us? Why does this matter so much to us today? Well, it matters because not only is it one of the key events that precedes the coming day of the Lord, and it's already happened 2,000 years ago, but since it's already commenced, it means that the Lord could return at any moment. And therefore, we must be prepared for his return. And so this leads us to the second event, the occurrence of signs. The occurrence of signs. Look at verses 30 and 31. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Can you imagine the sun turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood? You know, before the days of GPS, we used to have to verbally give people directions. You remember those days? You had to actually talk to somebody and tell them how to get somewhere. Uh, And that was hard work. We would say things like, go to this street. Turn here, turn there. If you've gone to this point, you've, you've gone too far, but if you see this sign, you know you're getting close. Well, all throughout Scripture, God gives us directions. He gives us signs to look for that indicate the final day of the Lord is getting close. Again, nobody knows the day nor the hour, and if you ever come across somebody that's predicting it, they're wrong. Right? Don't be fooled. Many people have been fooled into selling off their 401ks and their retirement accounts and selling their houses thinking that the rapture was going to happen. And what happened? Nothing. So don't, don't believe the lies. But there are a lot of signs that indicate that the Lord is coming to prepare our hearts. And so in addition to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Joel gives some, a very small description of some of these signs. Very small. But before we get into Joel's description... It's important to understand, so listen closely, it's important to understand that the Lord's return is one event, one event that will happen in two stages, all right? One event that will happen in two stages. Let me show you a little timeline here I found. Uh, There it is. It's really, this is kind of a simplified version of it, but as you can see, there's phase one, phase two, one event that will occur in two phases. And so the first stage is called the rapture, when the Lord's going to return to take believers out of this world. And this is the event. When we talk about the Lord can return at any moment, this is the event that I am speaking about, at least for the context of today's uh, passage. Um, The rapture, phase one. Joel doesn't talk about the rapture, but it's talked about in other places of scripture. That's phase one of the second coming. Listen to how Paul describes this event in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, And with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's how Paul describes the rapture. Now we'll go back to the timeline. The second stage, phase two, is when Christ will physically, physically come down to the earth and establish his kingdom. He is going to rule physically on this earth. We can't get into that today, but it's going to happen. He's going to come down, and then he's going to bring judgment upon the nations. Final judgment. The day of the Lord. The final day of the Lord happens after phase two. And so this event will take place sometime after a period you'll see called the tribulation. And this is a period when the earth will experience calamity unlike anything we've ever, ever seen before. I mean, church, you think the COVID-19 thing is crazy? You ain't seen nothing Yet. And fortunately, if you're a believer, 
you ain't going to see it anyway. <laughs> right? But if you want to read about it, you could, you could uh, re- uh, check out the book of Revelation. It talks a little bit about the tribulation period, a lot about the tribulation period during that time. It is no bueno for anybody uh, during that time. If you're with me, say 10-4, good buddy. I right, just making sure. So what Joel appears to be describing here, to, to the best of, of our human understanding, you look at all the comment, everybody's got different you know, things to talk about, but what, what it appears that Joel is describing here in these verses is signs or events that will take place at the end of the tribulation. Jesus actually described it this way in Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will, fall, stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn as they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so, church, both Joel, here's something to, to just kind of important to understand. Both Joel and Jesus were describing specific signs that will take place before Christ's physical return and final judgment. Okay? But well before these signs take place, there are other signs that indicate the Lord's return, the first coming, the first part of the second coming, the Lord's return. There are other signs in Scripture that indicate it is imminent. Signs that were predicted long ago, yet are predominant in our culture right now. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I cannot get past this. I just read this the other day in my devotions, and it, never, it always hits me every time. But understand this. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Friends, when I look at, at these verses and what they're describing, and then you look at the world around us, I mean, I get it. I get that all this stuff kind of existed, like always, right? Ever since, ever since even Adam and Eve kind of sinned against the Lord, ever since the fall of man, all these things existed in the world. But, I, but man, common sense, or just when you look around, it, it, they're more than just existing, right? They're predominant. I mean, they're everywhere. People are even looking at these things and approving the fact that they're happening. And so again, why does this matter to us? It matters because it signifies that Jesus could return at any moment and we must be prepared. And this leads us to the third event that Joel was able to see, look towards. Look at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The offer of salvation, by the way, is the third point, offers of salvation. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Came across an interesting true story. In 1830, a man named George Wilson was convicted of robbing the U.S. mail and was sentenced to be hanged. And so President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for Wilson. But interestingly enough, he refused to accept it. 
The matter went to the Chief Justice John Marshall, who concluded that because Wilson rejected the pardon, he would have to be executed. And so Marshall wrote, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Church, the prophet Joel foresaw a time when God would offer a pardon to anyone who called upon his name. For anyone who turned to God and accepted his offer, they would be saved. And in this specific case, not only would they receive physical deliverance from the day of the Lord, but they would receive spiritual deliverance as well. However, if anyone rejected his offer, they would face God's wrath. And so, friends, this same pardon that Joel foresaw almost 3,000 years ago, that same pardon that he foresaw is offered to you and to I today. Now, I know this may come as a shock to probably most of you in this room, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Sooner or later, you're going to die. And sooner or later, you're going to stand before God and give an account of your life. Hebrews 9.27, we had read it earlier. It's just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, if you die having received the pardon, you've got nothing to fear. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. But if you die having not received the pardon, then you have everything to fear. Which begs the question, if you're sitting here today, maybe you're not sure, well, what do I need to do to receive the pardon? It begins by understanding why you need a pardon in the first place. You see, the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners. And because God is holy, he can't have anything to do with sin. In fact, he hates sin. Therefore, it's our sin that separates us from him. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And unless we turn from our sin and rebellion and turn to God, when we die, we must go to a place of eternal separation from him. A place called hell. And to make matters worse, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves because we're sinners. And sinners can't solve their own sin problem. So it needs to be an outside source. We're guilty as charged. And so therefore, just like George Wilson, we need someone who has the authority to provide for us a pardon. And that's where Jesus comes in. God and his great love and affection for us had a plan to resolve the sin problem. He provided a way for us to be saved by sending his son, Jesus. Look, I know that most of us are churched people in this room today, but can we never get tired of hearing the gospel? Because maybe someone's here that needs to hear it for the first or second or third or fourth time. Maybe it's time to respond. Romans 5, 8, and 9, some of my favorite verses, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right in the middle of the muck, while we were still sinners, he died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. From the moment when you admit you're a sinner in need of a savior, the moment when you admit there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, the moment when you repent of your sin and accept God's pardon by placing your faith in Jesus is the moment when you're saved. And it doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how far you've fallen away, no one is prohibited from receiving God's pardon. It's like, well, i got to clean up my life first and then receive God's pardon. No, you don't. The guilty party receives the pardon. 
There is no cleaning up your life. You messed up. I messed up. There's no fixing the problem. The pardon is the only thing that fixes the problem. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it best when he actually quoted the prophet Joel in Romans 10.13. He says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what everyone means? Everyone. You know, it's like a lot of people are playing Russian roulette with their faith. I was kind of hoping the COVID-19 pandemic would change some of that. Maybe it has, maybe it remains to be seen, I don't know. But they're putting off, some people are putting off making a decision for Christ, whether it's getting saved for the first time or whether it's actually choosing to follow him once you are saved. They're betting on having time that they may or may not have. And friends, if that's you, I want you to listen closely. It's a bad bet. It's a bad bet. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Not to mention the Lord could return at any moment. And if you think you could put off receiving his pardon until you die or he returns, you're wrong because by then it's too late. George Wilson can't receive the pardon from the president after he's already hanged. Too late. And so the right time to receive God's pardon is now. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says it best. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. And so this leads us back to today's truth to remember. We must turn to God while it's called today. And as I mentioned earlier, I believe this truth applies just as much to believers as it does unbelievers. Because in both cases, it revolves around repentance. You see, for unbelievers, it's, it's changing your mind about sin and it's, and it's turning to, to Jesus and, and, and as an act of faith, it's asking him to forgive you of your sin and trusting in, in him alone for your salvation. This is the first and most important and most critical step in preparing for the Lord's return. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have his Holy Spirit indwelling you, you're in trouble. Okay? That's the first step. But it doesn't end there. Because for believers... It means turning from sinful behavior that prevents you from being an effective follower of Christ. Friends, let's have some real talk today. When you become a believer, you don't stop sinning, right? That, that's the aspiration. That's the goal through the power of the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus, right? But no one in this room can claim, well, ever since I accepted Jesus, I'm just perfect. No, it's work. Not, not with our own strength, with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a choice to say, you know what, Lord? I've given you my, my eternity. I want to give you my earthly life as well. It's discipleship. You know, the disciples weren't changed overnight. And so, friends, turning to God while it's called today as a believer, it means repenting of sin that prevents you from doing his will. We've all got it. And we do that so that when he returns or calls you home, God will find you faithful and God will find you prepared. You know, Jesus asked this question in Luke 18, 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Church, how many of you want to be found faithful in the end? Say amen. Well, as we close this morning, whether it's for the very first time in your life or the 400th time in your life, I want to encourage you to get your heart right with the Lord today. Turn to God while it's called today. 
If you're here as an unbeliever and you're like, man, this is resonating and I need, I need to get right with Jesus. I need to trust him as my Lord and Savior. What are you waiting for? Trust him today. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Put your whole trust in Jesus and he will save you. And if you're a believer in this room and you're thinking, man, I, I got to get right with the Lord too. It's not a salvation issue. It's more of like a sanctification issue. It's more of like, man, Lord, I have not been faithful. You know, the beautiful thing about God's grace is he doesn't hold that against us. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. But at the same time, he wants us to be effective followers of Jesus. He wants to find us faithful when he returns. So if, if that's you in this room and there's some work you've got to do with the Lord, I encourage you to do that this morning. I'm going to invite those that are uh, closing in song to come forward now. And as they come forward, I'm just going to pray over you as you kind of just have some time of introspection and asking God, uh, to, to work in you while it's called today. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for Joel. I want to thank you for, for this reminder of this minor prophet who spoke of things that, that we look at, we're like, what does this have to do with us, God? But then you just kind of threw in there uh, this wonderful uh, little example of what the future is going to look like and, and the importance of, of, of prepping for that moment. And so, God, I, I do think of those that might, may be here today that need to make a decision for Jesus for the first time. Or maybe they've gone to church forever and they've heard this message a hundred times, but now's the day, uh, God, where it needs, to re- it needs to be owned. And, God, I pray for that person. If someone needs to, to come to faith in you, may they turn uh, away from sin and turn uh, to your son, Jesus. And, God, as, as most of us in this room have, have at one point or another made that decision, God, we admit that we, we need your mercy and your grace every single day. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to live the life you called us to live. We're so thankful, God, that because of the blood of Jesus, you no longer hold our sin against us, God. And we never have to question our salvation. But Lord, the more we're at this thing, the more we recognize how sinful we still really are. And so, God, we pray that you would reveal that sin to us and help us to, to acknowledge it, repent of it, And God, keep moving forward to become more and more like Jesus. And I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.